Shalom. Happy Father's Day, dads. I'm sorry we don't have flowers for the fathers. No, but we have the bill for the flowers that we gave out on Mother's Day that we want to give to you. Chicago, Illinois, gave out a statistic. The phone company in Illinois said that um, there are more calls on Father's Day than there are on Mother's Day, but that most of the calls are collect phone calls. <laughs> so dads are still dads. 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. The worst part and the best part of your child's school year has just ended. It was the worst part because all of the tests came at the end, the final exam. It's the best part because it's over and it's summertime. Life has a series of examinations. I would call them midterm exams. These are opportunities, pass or fail opportunities, ways to gauge our spiritual growth. We had such a test in Israel. 225 of us went the last couple of weeks. So here you have 225 Christians in a non-Christian environment, in hotels, in shops, in restaurants. And the impression that was left was such a good impression. Uh, people who ran the hotels and restaurants said, where did you get these people? They're so nice. They're so loving. Did you hand select them? <laughs> and if there's one course, if there's one area that we ought to pass and get a straight A in, it's in this area of love. Because Jesus said that the summation of the law was love. He was asked one day by someone, Master, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your soul, all of your heart, all of your mind. That's the greatest and the first commandment. But the second, he said, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all of the law and the prophets. But have you found that vertical love, loving God, is much easier than horizontal love? Because God is so perfect, so lovable, and we as humans, after all, are far from perfect and often unlovable, it's harder to love horizontally than it ever is to love vertically. But according to the Bible, you can never separate the two. To love God means you love the objects of God's love. It was a Palm Sunday when a family went to church, all except the little boy. He had strep throat and had to stay home. So the family, when they returned, brought with them some palm branches, which is typical in some churches to give out in commemoration of Palm Sunday. When the little boy who had been home saw the palm branches, he asked what it was all about. And so the mother explained that the people held the palm branches over Jesus' head as he walked by. The little boy's response was classic. He said, oh, great, 
the one time I don't go to church and Jesus shows up. How can you tell if Jesus has shown up in our lives? It's by this wonderful fruit of the Spirit called love. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. We're going to take a little exam today. I call this message Love 101, a midterm exam. It's not the final. The final comes on Judgment Day. But until then, we can take a little test and examine our own love for one another. Now, I want you to notice in verse 7, that's really where we will camp this morning. Verse 7 and the first part of verse 8. Notice how all-encompassing the description of love is. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. It would be much easier and safer to just apply this verse to God and say, God's love is so comprehensive. God's love endures all things. God is so wonderful in His love. And we could spend all of the time applying this to how God loves people. To do so would be easier, safer. It'd keep us out of the line of fire. But to do so would be to unplug the text from the context. We must apply this to our love for each other. Not God's love for us, but how we love each other. Why? Simply because that is the context. Paul is writing a real letter to a real group called Corinthians who were having trouble loving each other. And because this is exactly what Jesus told us to do. It's part of what he called a new commandment. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you ought to love each other just like I love you. So we're going to apply it to ourselves. I admit it's a steep directive, but we must apply this to ourselves. Now, Love is probably the toughest course in the Christian curriculum. Because there's an awful lot of times in your life where you will be challenged by people. It'll be very difficult to stare some people in the eyes and say, I'm going to choose to love you. Everything, every fiber will say, don't do it, of your natural being. It's a tough course. And at the end of this service, before we close, I want to give you what I think is is a partial reason why some people find it very difficult to love. As we begin this morning, I read something I want to pass on. When the temple priests 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, the Levites, would watch the temple, they they would operate in shifts, just like today we have a morning shift and an evening shift and a graveyard shift. There were shifts or courses of priests who would serve. And the priests that were leaving the temple would greet those who were coming into the temple with these words. May he who has made his name dwell in this house make love and brotherliness, peace and friendship dwell in your midst. What a wonderful expression to anyone who would serve the Lord. And before we dive into our text this morning and apply this little test, I think we should just pause and ask God to do the same in our fellowship, in our families, in our relationships.
Father, we do that. We are now under the, the bright light of Scripture. Our hearts are open. We sit here exposed before you. You know all things about us. And we pray that love and brotherliness, peace and friendship would be the things that mark us. They'd be in our midst. In our families, our marriages, our friendships, our business relationships, with neighbors that we live across the street from, with friends that we know across the country. May that be true in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. First question on the exam. How strong is your love? The first thing that verse 7 tells us in these pithy little sayings is that love bears all things. Now I want you to go back. Go back to the first century church at Corinth. And let's frame the context. One of the things the Corinthian Christians were not doing, they weren't bearing with each other. There were a few different problems that were going on inside the church. One was competition. They were polarizing around certain spiritual leadership styles. Still happens today. Some would say, I'm of Paul. Others, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. Just like people today will buy the newest Christian book or, or gravitate around the teachings of some author or some Bible teacher. And rather than just saying, well, praise the Lord, they'll grow up, they'll mature, they'll come to a balance. What the Corinthians were doing is they were reacting to that polarization by finding their own leader to polarize against. So that, that wasn't bearing with each other, that was overbearing. Not only was there this competition, there was another problem, litigation. You see, Corinthian Christians were taking each other to court. They'd have a disagreement, an argument. Instead of praying about it, humbling themselves, forgiving one another, they'd say, I'll see you in court, buckaroo. Paul addresses that in chapter 7, verse 27. No, chapter 6, verse 7. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? They weren't bearing with each other. They were battling with each other. So there was competition. There was litigation. There was a third problem. There was separation. There was rampant divorce in the Corinthian church. They found themselves in awkward situations, some of them. In a marriage, one spouse would become a Christian, leaving that spouse married to an unbeliever. And Paul was writing and saying, you shouldn't go out and marry an unbeliever. And so they thought, well, I'm already married to one, so I want to dump him or her. Or because there was an incompatibility, problems in the marriage, they were looking for any loophole. And Paul addresses that issue in chapter 7, and he says, Remain in the same calling in which you are called. If you have a wife, don't end the marriage. They weren't bearing with each other. They were bailing from each other. In all of these situations that I mentioned, you have a first century church that was giving sinful reactions to others' sinful actions. They were going down to that low level. So somebody thought, I have a a superior theological position than you do because I'm of Paul. 
And instead of saying, ah, oh, praise God, they were saying, hey, my position is more superior than yours. They were fighting. If there was an anger issue between two brothers, instead of just forgiving it and letting the wrong go, they were taking each other to court, etc. These were sinful reactions to sinful actions. So we can measure our love for each other by how quick we react to the shortcomings of other people. Do we bear with people? Does that mark us? Are we forbearing individuals? Or do we find a shortcoming and then go after it? You see, love carries burdens. It bears all things. That's what Isaiah predicted of Jesus Christ. Surely He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Peter noted that about the Savior. He said when, when Jesus was reviled, He didn't revile again. He didn't pay them back. But He committed Himself to the one who judges righteously. He let it go. He was bearing. Forbearing with one another in love. I read a story about a little girl who... You've got to picture the scene in your mind. She was standing over a bulldog and she was growling at it. And when her mom reprimanded her, the little girl said, Well, he started it. Which may be true. I mean, that's the nature of a bulldog. But will she accomplish anything reducing herself to the level of the bulldog? No. Neither will we. If, if somebody who is weaker gives off some kind of unspiritual vibe or acts sinfully toward us, we, we, we don't need to go down to that level. Take the high road. Romans 15, verse 1, we who are strong in the faith should bear with the failings of the weak. Galatians 6, 2 tells us, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When uh, we were in Israel, our last day, we're actually the day we were flying back, we celebrated our anniversary, my wife and I. We've been married now 20 years. And um, thank you. And the last night that we were together with the group, uh, they gave us a surprise anniversary uh, party. And our tour guide and his wife brought in a cake. Happy anniversary. Well, they wanted us to take pictures and cut the cake and actually feed the cake to each other like the marriage. And I tell you, when my wife held the cake in her hands, it was a flashback. I, I thought of 20 years previously. And I remember her holding that cake on our wedding day right up to my mouth, and she gave that little impish smile, which I thought, uh-oh, here goes. But she didn't do it. On our wedding day, she just nicely fed it into my mouth. But as I stood there on our 20th anniversary, I thought, now it's been 20 years. <laughs> and it's payback time. And I thought, surely she's just going to go, but she didn't do it. Because love bears all (laughs) things. So how strong is your love? Second question on the exam, how trusting is your love? Love believes all things. Now that doesn't mean if you love somebody, you're gullible. It means that love isn't quick to be cynical or scornful. Or suspicious. You know, there are some people who automatically, their first response when they hear some, uh, some bit of news about somebody else is to quickly bring it to the lowest possible level to judge the motives. Say, yeah, right. Scornful attitude. 
When you love somebody, you'll believe them quicker than you will berate them. Now, I, I admit, I understand, I know that love can be broken. There are relationships that, that can erode to the point where trust is absolutely shattered. But when you love somebody, which is a choice more than a feeling so many times, when you love someone, you make the same choice that the American jurisprudence system makes with a criminal, innocent till proven guilty, rather than saying, I know you're guilty. No, you are innocent until you are proven guilty. Love makes that choice. So we can measure, once again, our love by how quick we are to cover a person's wrongdoings or expose them. When your child does something wrong, as a parent, if your child does something wrong in public, because you love your child, you want to put the best face on it. You'll go to the person and go, look, he's just a kid. He didn't mean it. He didn't mean to say that. But if somebody you don't like does the same thing, you'll spin it differently. Oh, I knew he'd do that. That's just like Skip. <laughs> there was a boy that came from a very poor home. He, his clothes were pretty shabby. In fact, most of his pants had patches on them. The teachers at school, he got along with great, but there was one favorite teacher. He loved her. And when they asked him about, why do you love her so much? He said, because she's so interested in me. She doesn't seem to see my patches. That's love. Love believes all things. Doesn't look at the patches. That's how Jesus loved people. Jesus looked at people through the eyes of love, believing the highest. For instance, the first time he met Nathaniel, who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? First time Jesus met him, he said... Nathaniel, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. When he met Simon, he renamed him Peter. Now, Simon Peter was the apostle of shifting sand. Unreliable. But Jesus looks at him and gives him a new name. I'm going to call you Rocky. Petros, a rock. He saw the potential. Or how about Levi, the tax collector? Levi indicates that he was probably from the priestly family. He should have been working in the temple, but he was a renegade. He now works for the Roman governments, ripping off the Jewish people. Jesus meets him and says, I'm not going to call you rip-off. I'm going to call you a gift, Matthew. Love sees the potential. Love believes all things. Now, the Bible also gives us some examples of people who did not love. They did not believe the best. They believed the worst. When Job was sick, when disease covered his body, he lost his family, he lost everything he owned. The Bible tells us that Job had a few friends, so-called, that gathered around him. And they tried to figure out theologically the, the reason why good people suffer. And so they debated and they came up with their issues. And their bottom line is, Job, the reason you're suffering is you're not godly. Because godly people don't suffer. You must be a sinner of the worst kind. That's why God is punishing you. And that is why Job called them miserable comforters are you all. Then there were the Pharisees. They didn't show love by believing all things. They believed the worst. 
they brought to Jesus in the temple a woman who had been caught in adultery. And as they brought her in Jesus' midst, they said, Master, we have found this woman caught in the very act of adultery. And the law says she ought to be stoned to death. What do you say? Now, what's wrong with that picture? Where's the guy? If she's caught in the very act of adultery, there's got to be a guy. It takes two to tango. But they didn't bring the guy. They brought the gal. And so Jesus stood up and said, you're right, stoner. In fact, any of you here without any sin, you throw the first rock. And they all left, convicted by their conscience. Then Jesus stood alone with the woman and said, woman, where are your accusers? Sir, I have none. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. In John chapter 9, there was a man who had been blind from birth, and Jesus did a very interesting form of healing. I'd never seen this on any of the televangelist shows. Jesus spit in his eye. That's what he did. He took mud, spit, made, put it in the guy's eye, and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he came back seeing. And now he's going through Jerusalem saying, I'm healed. I was blind, and now I see. The Pharisees found him. And the Bible says they did not believe concerning him that he had been born blind. You liar. You probably were faking it all your life. Yeah, right. But you see, hatred believes the worst. Love believes the best. That's what it means by love believes all things. Here's another way to look at it. Some translations render this, love never loses faith. So that in the midst of anything you go through, you still hold on. You still trust God. Because you love Him. Or you love each other. You love a relationship, a person, a spouse, a child. In the midst of anything, you're going to believe. You're going to hold on. Your faith will be challenged by pain, by suffering, by seemingly unanswered prayers. You'll question God. But faith believes in the midst of all things. It's true. When I was engaged to my wife, we we struggled in that whole issue of actually getting married. I had the coldest feet. We believed that God called us together. But we wanted to know that for sure. We wanted to enter into this relationship and be able to look back all our lives and say, God brought us to this point, no doubt. Not that we were all mystical about it. We were attracted to each other. But we wanted that spiritual dimension to be so tight because we knew that life would offer us the kind of challenges that would shake us so that we needed to look back and say, remember what God did, how we came together? This is of the Lord. So that we could believe it no matter what. Love believes all things. Third, how hopeful is your love? Notice the order. Love bears, love believes, and third, after believing, love hopes. Why? Because even when your belief in a person is shattered, if you love that person, you'll hold out, even if it's a spark of hope. Okay, there's a person. You believe the best. You believe the highest. That person is innocent till proven guilty, but then come to find out he's guilty. Your faith has been shattered. Your trust has been desecrated. You believed in the person. The person failed. The person is guilty. 
Because you love, you hope that things in the future will be different. You see, folks, hope says that as long as God's grace is operative, human failure is never final. As long as God's grace is in operation, human failure is never final. That's love. How did God love the children of Israel? They failed time and time and time again, but God never saw that as final. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, God predicted You're going to fail me. You're going to turn to other gods. You're going to walk away from me. And I'm going to send you into the captivity of the people whose gods you worship. But, he said, I will bring you back with cords of love. He predicted their failure, but he predicted his love and their restoration. That's hopeful love. Love hopes all things. What about Peter? Jesus never accepted Peter's failure as final. Remember that night when Jesus probably put his arm around Peter and said, Peter, before the night's over, you're going to deny me three times. Oh, Lord, how could you say such a thing? Remember, I'm the rock. Everybody else may flake out on you, but can count on me. No, Peter, you're going to deny me. Lord, you don't know me. (laughs) Oh, yes, I do, Peter. That's why I say you're going to deny me not once, Not twice, but three times. Then he said, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you have returned, I want you to strengthen your brethren. Jesus predicted his failure and his return with love. And then after Jesus rose from the dead, you remember, he went to Peter on the shores of Galilee and said, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, I love you. Well, feed my sheep. Tend my lambs, feed my lambs. He recommissioned them. He never accepted the failure as final. That's love. Love hopes. Hopes all things. When Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians and rebuked them for their lack of love for one another, he still held out hope. Now here's my question for you. Who has let you down? Who has failed you? You can think of at least one person. Maybe you have a running list. I don't know. But who in your eyes has failed? A child has backslidden or a child has left the family. You haven't heard from that son or daughter for years. A spouse is in the midst of leaving you, spurning your love, very insensitive towards you, refuses to come to church, refuses to come to Christ. A friend has backstabbed you. You know, I think that we give up far too quickly. We write people off. Oh, that's a hopeless cause, hopeless case. Not when you love them. I want to tell you a story. I'm going to read it to you. It's in a book from the author is Lee Strobel. The book is entitled What Jesus Would Say. And this is a story that he writes about Bob McAllister, who's... uh, volunteer for prison fellowship, went to death row to visit an inmate. The inmate was named Rusty Woomer. Here's the story. Rusty, his face the color of chalk, was sitting on the floor motionless. Dozens of roaches covered the wall and the floor. But what froze my soul were the roaches crawling on the man, his lap, his shoulder, and his face. And he did not even flick them off. 
This 35-year-old murderer of four innocent people had sunk to the depths of hopelessness. Bob wasn't sure how to react to this depressing scene. Finally, he pleaded, Rusty, Rusty, just say the name Jesus. Slowly and painfully, with all of the effort he could muster, the nearly comatose inmate whispered the name of the Savior of the world. Then Bob began to explain to him how Jesus is the God of hope. It was clear that Rusty was paying attention. At the end, when Bob asked if he wanted to accept Christ's offer of forgiveness, Rusty nodded. Through his tears, he prayed, Jesus, I've hurt a lot of people. Ain't no way that I deserve you to hear me, but I'm tired, I'm sick, and I'm lonely. Please forgive me, Jesus, for everything I've done. I don't know much about you, but I'm willing to learn. And I thank you for listening to me. Bob returned the following week. And he said, I walked up to his cell. It was spotless. Gone were the dirt. Gone were the roaches. And the porno magazines. The walls were scrubbed. The bed was made. The scent of disinfectant hung in the air. And Rusty himself was smiling and enthusiastic. Bob... He said, I spent all weekend cleaning out my cell because I figured that's what Jesus wanted me to do. There's a hopeless case. But Bob held out a spark of hope. Just, just say the name of Jesus. Let's just start there. And because love hopes all things, salvation came out of that spark. Beautiful story. Fourth, how committed is your love? For he says, love endures all things. Now, the word that Paul chose to use in this little sentence is hupameno. Hupameno. And if you've been with us for any length of time, you have heard me use the word hupamone, which is the noun form of this. Hupamone is translated usually patience or endurance. Hupameno was a military term of an army who was sieging another city. And the army would hold its position at all costs. It would dig in for the long haul. In fact, maybe when Paul wrote this, he was thinking of the way the Roman army worked. You can still see remnants of that today. When you visit Masada and you stand on top, you see a Roman wall, the ruins of it, that went all the way around the fortress. That's how Rome worked. They would come in and spend years years, if need be, to conquer a city. They'd build a wall around it. They'd build walls around several camps. And they'd stay there for months or years, not letting anybody out of the city or into the city, starving them slowly to death, crushing their spirits, then they'd attack. Hupameno, holding your position. Here's his point. Love will hunker down, maintain its course, and not be deterred under any opposition. Love endures all things. You want an example of that in the New Testament? Stephen. Stephen, in the book of Acts, stands before the Jewish Sanhedrin giving his testimony. He loved them. He loved the Jewish people. And in a face-off, he's telling them about the Savior and God's plan in the Old Testament. And how did those people react to Stephen? They taunted him, derided him, cursed at him, and threw stones at him. And they killed him. 
And while stones are pelting his body, you see, those stones weren't enough to stop his love. As those stones were hitting his body, Stephen prayed out loud, Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. That's love. His love endured. Now, I'd like to apply that to us, to two different situations, one to marriage, two to our church. Marriage, because we all need that. Church, because we all need that. How many marriages do you know that really display enduring love? Enduring love. So often when I stand at this position with a couple and I say the vows slowly and deliberately, I often feel that young couples don't hear all the vows. So I'll say them slowly. For better or for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. And I often get the feeling that some young couples only hear half. They hear better, they hear richer, and they hear health. That's about it. And with some couples, and it's pretty obvious by looking around, have this tacit, unspoken understanding that, well, we're going steady, kind of more permanently. But if things change, if you get ugly, if I get ugly, then we'll call it quits. A young teenager was looking at her grandmother's wedding ring and she said she noticed how thick and cumbersome it was. She says, man, Grandma, 50 years ago they sure made these things bulky. And Grandma said, yeah, that's because in my day they were meant to last a lifetime. Love endures all things. Love endures financial hardships in a marriage when the money isn't quite what it should be even to pay the bills. Love will endure that. Love endures the child-rearing years when sacrifices must be made and attention is diverted from the spouse to the child. Love will endure the empty nest years when after a lifetime of getting used to raising the children, you just have each other. Love will endure that. Love will endure the long, cold, hard years of old age when there are more pills than there are thrills. When it's hard, it's tough, it's painful. Love endures all things. Now let's look at it in a church context. Because after all, the Corinthians were not enduring with each other. They were splitting over the worst kind of issues. This is not an age... The year 2001, this is not an age of enduring love among church members. One of the reasons for that is because there are so many churches in any given town that if you don't treat me the way I think I ought to be treated, I'll just find another church. That's really enduring. See, in the early church, there was one church in Corinth. There weren't any others. Paul says, you've got to stick it out. You've got to work it through. Love endures all things. There's a store over in England in the town of Nottingham. I was through that city a few months ago. It's a coat store, and there's a notice on the window. This is what it reads. We've been established for over 100 years and have been pleasing and displeasing customers ever since. 
We've made money. We've lost money. We've suffered the effects of coal nationalization, coal rationing, government control, and bad payers. We have been cussed and discussed, messed about, lied to, held up, robbed, and swindled. And the only reason we stay in business is to see what happens next. There's a very realistic store owner who knew that life will have bumps in the road. But you know what? Let's just hang on. We've done it this long. Let's see what happens next. If for no other reason. And because love endures all things based upon hope that comes before it, faith, hope, then endurance, you hang on just to see what God's going to do next. Who knows? Nothing is impossible. Fifth and finally, how lasting is your love? Verse 8 has a whole thought. We'll uncover the rest next week. But look at those first three words. It forms a simple sentence. Love never fails. Now Paul ties all of the previous thoughts together into one package. He, He moves from time into eternity, from the temporal to the eternal. He says love never fails. Now, never He's speaking of time, not frequency. He's not saying, if you love somebody, you'll never have a lapse in your love. That's unrealistic. He's simply saying that love has staying power. Love is not a temporary emotion. It is a permanent decision. It's a permanent decision, not a temporary emotion. Love never fails, or literally, love never falls. The Greek word pipto speaks of a flower that has the the, the petals fall off, it decays, it withers. The leaves fall. Love never falls. Love endures. Love is eternal. And the thought he's trying to get to this Corinthian church is, your God is eternal. God made you to inhabit eternity. So your love must somehow reflect part of that eternal nature. You're going to carry love into all of eternity. Now I can hear the wheels spinning a bit because I have heard those wheels spinning many times in my office. I've sat down with friends or business relations or married couples or parents and children. And I've heard things like, Skip, I feel like my love is just dead. I don't feel the same toward this person as I used to feel. And I listen carefully and I count all the times I hear the word feel. And I gently but forthrightly say, so what? Love isn't a feeling. If there's one thing we have learned in this series of messages, love is a commitment, a decision, not a feeling. I want you to listen carefully. I'm going to close off with this paragraph. Written by C.S. Lewis, he wrote Mere Christianity. And in that book, Mere Christianity, is a little paragraph that I think is freeing. Especially when we say, i, I got to feel, I don't feel the same. Listen carefully. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you'll find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, 
you'll find yourself disliking him less. You know why that's freeing? It shows us that choice is the engine, feeling is the caboose. Feelings will follow the engine, the choice. But if you make emotion the engine, you'll be starting and stopping your whole life, derailing most of the time. Act as if you did. Now, at the beginning, I mentioned that love is a difficult course in the curriculum. And I I said that I'd share with you at least one reason why love is so difficult for some people. There's some people who just don't seem to be able to show love to anyone. Very difficult for them. I want to give you a reason, at least one. In the New Testament, Jesus was invited to a man's house. He was a Pharisee. His name was Simon. Jesus was like a celebrity. He was having this celebrity over for dinner. And Simon had it all picture perfect in his mind how the evening was going to go until a woman slipped in the courtyard who was a notorious sinner in town. She spoiled the party. She came over to Jesus, started crying, weeping on his feet and drying his feet with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee thought, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of chick this is. He wouldn't have any part of this. So Jesus turns to Simon, gives him a little parable, and this is how he ends. Simon, her sins, and I know they are many, have been forgiven. Now listen. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. One of the reasons some people have such a hard time loving is they've never been forgiven. They've never really come to Christ and humbled themselves and admitted, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. Because when you do that, when you humble yourself before God, you see yourself for who you really are and you find that God's forgiveness covers a multitude of sins, you look at people differently. You love people differently. So maybe this morning, as you ponder your own life, you'd have to realize, I've never received God's love. Remember the little kid who said, when his parents came back from Palm Sunday, great, the one day I don't show up, Jesus shows up. Let me tell you something. Jesus has shown up here this morning. He's in our midst. Two or three have gathered in his name. He has shown the the bright spotlight of Scripture in every heart. And with some, he is saying with loving cords, come to me, give me your life, quit hiding behind the facade of I'm a good person, I go to church, I've always believed. Humble yourself and be forgiven. Truly give me your life and surrender. Heavenly Father, we pray that in this atmosphere of love that would happen. We have all needed this message. But you said a person who's been forgiven much shows much love. Lord, there's love waiting to be released. In so many people's lives. But it can't be until they receive your love and forgiveness. And that can't happen until one realizes, I really need that love and forgiveness because I've sinned. As we're praying in this as this atmosphere of God's family this morning, if you've come and 
in all honesty, you'd admit, I haven't truly been born again. I haven't surrendered my life to Christ. I haven't received forgiving love. Now's the time. Here's the place. We want to pray for you as we close the service. I'd like you just to raise your hand if you want to make a commitment to Christ right now. If you've never done it or you did it many years ago, you want to make a start right now. You're ready to come to Him for forgiveness. You raise your hand up, and I'll pray for you as we close the service. God bless you right up in front and right over here in the middle. Whether you were raised in a church or not is irrelevant. So many religious people have never truly come to Christ and His forgiveness. Anybody else? Raise your hand up. You're saying, I want to receive Christ as my Savior. In the back. God bless you. On the side, to my right. Thank you, Father, that we can always come to that fresh spring of acceptance and forgiveness. And having received it, Lord, help us now to show it. Help us to walk in it as your church. For everyone who has raised his or her hand, I pray especially that great changes would occur. Changes on the inside, perspective, outlook, the freedom from sin, the freedom to serve you and your people. Put your life inside each one of these so that everyone would say, this is a different group, this is a a different person. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.